0: We know you have lots of questions.
1: If you think that you've developed
0: symptoms. Should I avoid large public gatherings? Whether schools should be closed. Welcome to Common Sense. Here we address your questions about COVID-19 with interviews featuring experts in medicine and leaders in community, public, and global health. Here's your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. Welcome to the podcast COVID-19,
1: Common Sense Conversations on the Coronavirus Pandemic. I'm your host, Dr. Ted O'Connell. My guest today is Dr. Abdul El Sayed, a physician, epidemiologist, public health expert, and progressive activist. He is the chair at Southpaw, Michigan, and a contributor at CNN. He is the author of Healing Politics, which diagnoses our country's epidemic of insecurity and the empathy politics we will need to treat it, as well as Medicare for All: A Citizen's Guide with Micah Johnson. He hosts America Dissected, a podcast by Crooked Media, which goes beyond the headlines to explore what really matters for our health. In 2018, Abdul ran for governor of Michigan on an unapologetically progressive platform, advocating for universal health care, clean water for all, debt-free and tuition-free higher education, a pathway to 100% renewable energy, and to rebuild the barrier between corporations and government. His bid was endorsed by Senator Bernie Sanders, Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, The Nation, and Current Affairs. And though he earned over 340,000 votes, he finished second of three in the Democratic primary. Prior, he served as health commissioner in the city of Detroit, appointed to rebuild the city's health department after it was privatized during municipal bankruptcy. He was the youngest health official in a major U.S. city. Responsible for the health and safety of over 670,000 Detroiters, the Detroit Health Department became a state and national leader in public health innovation and environmental justice in one of the fastest municipal public health turnarounds in American history. He was awarded Public Official of the Year by the Michigan League of Conservation Voters and 40 Under 40 by Cranes Detroit Business. As a professor at Columbia University's Department of Epidemiology, Abdul became an internationally recognized expert in health policy and health inequalities. He was director of the Columbia University System Science Program and Global Research Analytics for Population Health. He has over 100 peer-reviewed publications that have earned over 1,200 citations, including a foundational textbook on system science and population health. Abdul holds a doctorate in public health from Oxford University, where he was a Rhodes Scholar, as well as a medical degree from Columbia University, where he was a medical scientist training program fellow and a Soros New Americans fellow. He graduated Phi Beta Kappa with highest distinction from the University of Michigan, where he was chosen to deliver the student commencement speech alongside President Bill Clinton. Abdul, thank you for joining me on the podcast today.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be with you and I really appreciate you uh, including me.
1: Absolutely. So, can we start by having you tell us a bit more about your early days and your path into medicine and epidemiology?
2: Yeah. I I grew up um, just outside Detroit uh, in a small suburb, but my uh, family um, really does capture the diversity of of our country, frankly. Um, My father is an Egyptian immigrant. And my stepmother, who raised me, is a daughter of the American Revolution. And so um, every summer uh, when I was in my teen years, I would travel to Alexandria uh, 15 hours um, on on a plane. And uh, I didn't know it at the time, but in those 15 hours, I would travel about 10 years difference in life expectancy. And I could see that in my own family, my grandmother, who is yet the the wisest and most intelligent person I've met in my life, um, though she never got to go to school. She gave birth to eight kids, but she only got to raise six. Two of them died before the age of one. And that meant that the infant mortality rate in my own family, just a generation above me, uh, was 25%. Now, here's the crazy thing. I didn't have to go 15 hours in an airplane to travel 10 years of life expectancy. I could have just taken uh, a, a, a car trip 25 minutes south into any neighborhood in Detroit and traveled the same distance. And I think that's what led me career in health. I wanted to do something about those disparities and who got to live a long, healthy life. Um, And and that led me down the path toward medicine and and, and ultimately epidemiology.
1: Outstanding. Um, And Abdul, can you please tell us about your background once you got into medicine um, as a public health expert an epidemiologist, and then as the health director for the city of Detroit?
2: Yeah. I, um, you know, I, I really enjoyed my training, but throughout it, I came to appreciate that, um, as I'm sure you'll, you'll appreciate, Ted, that so much of the way that we've allowed medicine and healthcare to be captured by corporations has taken the, 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 the humanity out of the practice. And I realized that throughout my training, I, I was really a lot more interested in addressing that system Toward the end of, of addressing those inequalities that I talked about uh, just earlier. And so I, I didn't train uh, clinically. I decided not to do a residency and started my career as uh, a professor in epidemiology focused on health disparities. Um, and then, you know, very quickly realized that the part of the work that I enjoyed the most was the advocacy and then also uh, building teams within the institution. And uh, realized pretty quickly that I probably should be building teams to advocate and drive. Uh, good work in public health. And one thing led to another. Uh, a good friend of mine had taken a job in Detroit um, working on education policy for the city uh, after the election of a new mayor uh, in 2014. And I was at home visiting my family, sat down with him. Uh, had had brought a couple of CVs just to, to pass along. Two weeks later, I got a call from the mayor asking if I'd be interested in the public health job. didn't really quite know what the public health job was, um, but came to interview nonetheless. And within two hours, I was offered the public health job, which Meant walking into a a, a department uh, to rebuild that department after it had been privatized when the city went through uh, bankruptcy in 2012. Um, I walked into a department of five city employees and 85 contractors in the back of the building where people pay parking tickets in Detroit, uh, and my job was to try and bring it back. And so, um, you know, I was able to, to to put some of that um, team building to good use and, uh, and, and 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 took on that work. We focused our work around uh, a, a central thesis our department. We wanted to leverage health to disrupt intergenerational poverty, which led us to focusing on a set of critical outcomes that we knew um, both had implications for the health of children, but also had real implications for their earning potential over the long term. Preterm birth, um, teen pregnancy, lead poisoning, uh, vision deficits, asthma, and uh, elderly isolation, knowing that one of the best things you could do for a young person is empower them with the attention and the care of an older person. Um, and so we, we set about rebuilding our department around those goals, uh, did things like um, standing up to some of the biggest corporate polluters in the state of Michigan, forced a marathon petroleum refinery to, to reduce its emissions when they had applied to increase them, spending $10 million of their own money to do it, um, made sure every school daycare and Head Start was tested for lead in their water after the Flint water crisis, which was, of course was only about 50 miles north of us, um, and then uh, uh, made sure that every child... Uh, would have a free pair of glasses if they needed one delivered at school within two weeks of a vision test, and um, and so uh, that that was the the work that really enlivened me and uh, ultimately led uh, to a continued focus on public service and, and politics.
1: Wow, that's an amazing story, and embedded in there is a, a good lesson that you never know what doors are going to open and what opportunities are going to present themselves. So then, right. Abdul, can you tell us about your decision to leave? That position and kind of leave healthcare um, and go into politics to run for the governor of Michigan.
2: Yeah, I was really proud of a lot of the work that we were able to do. But I also realized that there was a ceiling because if the work wasn't uh, palatable to the elected officials, then uh, there was really no way that we were going to get to do it. And there were a lot of things that the elected officials wanted done that I uh, knew was just wrong for the public's health. For example, um, even before I started there, the city was shutting off water on tens of thousands of homes a year, and um, you know, even uh, the UN Human Rights Commission uh, uh, piped up about it in 2014. Um, the city was demolishing homes uh, and potentially releasing lead into the air, and um, you know these were all things that the politicians in charge wanted done, and I knew w- weren't right. And at the same time, I watched our state government poison 9,000 kids in Flint, and then I watched Donald Trump get elected president. And at some point. Uh, I had to ask myself what my responsibilities were. Now, I was never planning to run for office. You don't do an MD and a PhD to run for office. That's not the career path. But um, I also realized that uh, those disparities that I wanted to solve, that why question uh, that had germinated a long time ago in Alexandria, um, really forced me to ask, well, if you know that the politics are getting in the way, how do you stand up for a politics that centers the well-being of young people? And um, so in 2018, decided to uh, to, to try my hand and, and ran for governor.
1: Wow, outstanding story, and I applaud you for for really taking a, a public health perspective to that run. Uh, at the outset, I introduced your book, Healing Politics, and in that you identify an epidemic of insecurity that's afflicting our country. Can you tell us about this idea?
2: That's right, Ted. I you know when I when I decided to run, I thought um, as I was. Uh, I was I was sort of becoming a, a, a politician that the epidemiologist in my mind would have to, you know, take a seat. Um, and, uh, you know, the thing about it though, right, as you well know, epidemiology is just a process of identifying patterns to try and isolate causes of illness. And if you think about our politics, our politics are pretty ill right now. And um, so, you know, on those long car rides home after spending time with voters in their living rooms or their VFW halls, you know that that little epidemiologist in my mind would leave his his room to which I had relegated him, uh, and you know I would start thinking about why are we so politically ill? And um, as I would connect the dots between the people that I was meeting, I came to appreciate that um, the circumstances that we face in this country right now uh, have left us fundamentally anxious about the future because all we have known for the past several decades is the uh, disintegration of a set of critical systems uh, that we rely upon to deliver the basic means of a dignified life, whether that's a housing system that is more interested in subsidizing people who earn six figures uh, than caring for people who earn uh, five or four, Uh, whether it is a healthcare system that delivers record profits for insurance companies and hospital corporations uh, while um, uh, uh, taking away uh, the power and the earnings of providers and leaving 10% of patients without access to healthcare at all. Uh, an economic system that is trading jobs for gigs. Uh, you know, we just saw a decoupling of the uh, stock market and the, um, the employment market, right? We saw record unemployment uh, and record stock market surges, which is just crazy. And a political system that uh, you know, is dominated by a set of, of consultants on K Street uh, in Washington, D.C who make millions, if not billions, of dollars selling us our politics, oftentimes to the highest bidder, uh, rather than empowering us to vote. And so you take all of these things together, there is a real anxiety about our future. Um, and uh, that is the epidemic of insecurity that the epidemiologist in my mind was sort of working toward as I campaigned across the, the state um, and that I ultimately wrote, wrote about after the race.
1: So that, that epidemic of insecurity makes a lot of sense as, as you describe it. And you've been very well educated as a physician and an epidemiologist. And you know the next step after we make a diagnosis is developing a treatment plan or a healing plan. So, what is the path to healing the rifts um, that this epidemic of insecurity has created?
2: Yeah, that's right, Ted. I, I wasn't, you know, at some point it was like, you know, you, you diagnose this thing, throw your hands up and walk away. Um, one of the things I came to appreciate is that even as all of us are suffering this epidemic of insecurity, not all of us suffer it the same way. If you're Black in this country, if you're a woman in this country, if you are a Native American in this country, if you are an immigrant uh, or without papers in this country, you are suffering it far worse because you lack the resources to be able to insulate yourself from it. But at the same time, it does affect all of our lives. I even talk about this idea of a paradoxical insecurity, that if you are uh, rich and have means in a profoundly... Uh, unequal society, you have an incentive in your own mind to just increase the distance between you and the poverty that your your energy is creating, and so there is a space for us to recognize that in this moment, our insecurity has left us vulnerable to be uh, divided and to be uh, to be split by demagogues who profit off of this system. Um, you know, it's exactly what Donald Trump has been doing, and. Um, and, and it is only when we are willing to put ourselves in the shoes of another and ask rather than what are they saying to me, asking why are they saying it to me to appreciate how this epidemic may be affecting them. And only when we are able to do that, do I believe that we're going to be able to come together to take this thing on. And so I believe that we have to really embrace a politics of empathy uh, if we're serious about taking uh, this epidemic of insecurity on and frankly saving our country. because. The consequences. I didn't know that we would be suffering it, the, the worst pandemic in over a hundred years when this book came out. Um, but uh, you know, you could easily have seen it coming given that diagnosis. We disinvested in our public health infrastructure. We were caught without the means of being able to respond uh, to this emerging infectious disease when it happened. Our politics were incoherent to the moment. We are being divided by a demagogue who's politicizing the means of being able to prevent uh, the spread of this thing. People are left economically insecure because they work gigs rather than working jobs. Science, science! 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 Hello, podcast fans. Want to get weird with us?
1: Come check out the Mad Scientist podcast. We are a weekly show that looks at the history, philosophy, and hard facts behind your biggest paranormal questions.
0: Did the government really pay for a psychic spy program? Yes! Is it true that surgery got its start in grave robbing?
1: Yes!
0: Can a roller coaster really
1: kill you? Legally, we can't say so for sure, but sometimes...
0: Yes! Mm.
2: Join myself, Chris Cogswell, and my co-host, Marie Mayhew, as we examine the science, philosophy, and history behind the strange and unusual. All to discover what's possible and plausible versus what's, well, just made up. Check us out wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Mad Scientist Podcast. And so not only are we suffering a public health epidemic, but we're also suffering an unemployment epidemic above that, which is complicating the health epidemic because because we've decided that somehow the way that you're supposed to get health insurance in this country is to be employed. Um, And so all of that is to say that we have been left uh, susceptible to this uh, pandemic uh, because of this epidemic. And um, it's only when we are willing to heal our politics that I think we can actually do the things that we need uh, to take this on.
1: Absolutely. And I'm supposed to be the host and you're supposed to be the guest here. And so I won't get started on on the move in Washington to eliminate the Affordable Care Act in in the midst of this epidemic. Um, But I'm glad you bring up the issue of disparities and inequalities. And and you also brought up COVID-19. The COVID-19 pandemic has really shined a light on health disparities, especially in the Black community, where death rates are four times higher than they are among whites. Can you talk with us about this and some of the root causes of what we're seeing?
2: Yeah, well, in in our society, um, there are two original sins that we have tried to paper over for a very long time. They are uh, slavery and Indian removal, quote unquote, um, the decimation of uh, Native Americans uh, for the capture of their lands. And they remain a trench in the civic geography of our society. And I think if we are going to take on rebuilding these systems, we have to rebuild them on a solid foundation, which means that we have to be willing to root out the systemic inequalities that drive worse outcomes in health and wealth and wellness uh, among black and Native Americans, but also uh, among people of color generally. And so you know it, it's not one oftentimes when I'm asked this question is it's not one um, uh, silver bullet. it is a um, a, a mutually interlocking system of, uh, of, of, of systemic racism. So it's everything from the air that a child is forced to breathe because of where they grew up, because where a corporation decided to move because of the political power of people in those communities. It's the, the state of the roads or the transit that people are forced uh, to, to traverse to and from jobs that don't pay fair wages. Um, That don't come with benefits. It's the nature of the housing that people are forced to live in, where there's leaded paint that is scraping off the walls. It is uh, the fact that water in those communities is so costly um, that we even shut it off on people because they can't pay for it. Uh, It's the fact that we uh, continue to allow a system of voter suppression that takes away the means of political power in those communities in the first place. And it's the way that all of those things tie together, mutually reinforce, and drive a cycle. Of inequity, and um, you know, as as we saw yet again uh, just a couple months, a couple weeks ago, uh, it's the fact that we have a system uh, of policing that's more focused on uh, policing that poverty uh, and, and, um, and 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 systematically blaming or incarcerating or killing people who are uh, suffering that poverty, rather than investing in the means of rooting it out. Um, so, if we're serious about health inequities in our society, that means we're going to have to be serious about everything that comes beyond those inequities. We're not going to be able to solve it in our clinics and hospitals where people spend 1% of their time, right? We've got to take that fight out to the communities uh, and the housing and the policing and the economics uh, in which people live, learn, work, pray, play. And that's got to be the work for the future.
1: Absolutely. And, And you kind of distilled down the idea of community medicine, where very little time actually happens in the clinic and in the hospital. And People spend most of the rest of their time in the community. Um, That's right. and you also described very well some of you know the ideas around social inequities and systemic racism. So I want to ask you: What specific public health issues, as, as well as perhaps social issues, economic issues um, within the Black community, do you see that really need to be addressed?
2: I think about it as as um, a, a set of structures that that go together. So we've got to reinvest in schools in Black communities. We've got to rethink the way that we uh, even pay schools because we ask localities to fund most of that. And then it's some of the differences made up for in, by states and the federal government. And all that does is institutionalize uh, poverty. Um, I think we've got to focus on environmental injustice. Uh, the fact that uh, in Black communities, the air is worth, qu- worse quality and the water is more liable to be po- poisoned uh, and too expensive. Um, I think we've got to really dig in on transit and transportation. Um, and then we've got to invest in access to uh, to good jobs, right? Um, uh, w- when we talk about the idea of fighting for a $15 minimum wage, it's the recognition that in this economy, a minimum wage job isn't something that's worked by some high school kid in the burbs. A minimum wage job is often something that uh, a family is living on. And so we've, we better uh, invest in that and make sure it comes with benefits. Um, and then uh, we've got to make sure that there, the healthcare inequities, the lack of access uh, to insurance, the lack of access to clinics and hospitals, the lack of high quality care in those clinics and hospitals, that that gets addressed as well. Um, and you know that manifests, these differences manifest in, in almost every outcome that you talk about. It doesn't matter if you're talking about COVID-19 uh, and the disparities that you talked about or maternal mortality or infant mortality or asthma hospitalizations or lead poisoning uh, or... Uh, mortality to lung cancer or prostate cancer, all of them see the same disparity. And that tells us that it's not about the physiology that mechanizes those disparities. It's about the social pathology uh, that creates them in the first place. And that's where we've got to focus if we really want to root them out.
1: Absolutely. Very well said. Again, kind of looking at this from a community standpoint and and, um, environmental standpoint, as opposed to something inherent to the individual. Um, so, Abdul, you rebuilt the health department in Detroit, which is America's largest majority Black city. What do you see as public policy solutions to fix the conditions causing such a high degree of illness and death among Blacks?
2: Yeah. Well, it's it is it. We've got to think be almost beyond the health department. I I, I hate to say it, right? I knew that working in the in in the clinic as a as a doctor, I was only going to be able to really take on. A few cases, and that's why I sort of moved into public health in uh, community medicine, as, as you've been talking about. And even then, right, in, in a lot of those circumstances, the, the work it, it wasn't targeting the systemic inequities enough. And so um, uh, like we've discussed, I think if we're serious about rooting out health inequalities, right we've got to think beyond what we do, specifically in the health space, uh, and really be invested in rooting out inequities in every single context. In which we find them. Because I think if we are able to do something about uh, inequalities in education, inequalities in access to clean air and water, inequalities in university access, inequalities in income and wealth, um, then, uh, then the inequalities in healthcare will solve themselves. Um, but uh, we've got to be a part of the solution too. And one of the most frustrating things that I've seen um, is that oftentimes we, we have this attitude that, uh, that there's a set of choices that different groups of people make. And that those choices uh, define the set of outcomes that, that they beget. And, um, and so this idea that somehow it's a matter of individual agency, uh, I just think is super bunk. I, I think about my dad. Um, you know, he immigrated here with very little. Um, and it would be easy to point to his story and say, well, you know, he grew up and became... I mean, he, uh, he emerged, he became a professor because he worked so hard, et cetera. That's part of the story. You know, my dad definitely worked hard. But it's also the fact that he came to do a PhD at a a university that was fully paid for, Um, and it's the structure that robs too many people of those opportunities uh, that we really have to be focused on if we're serious about taking on uh, inequalities. It's not about a set of um, a set of bad decisions. It's about a set of impossible choices that people are dealt. Do I pay my rent or do I pay uh, for the water? Do I pay for car insurance or do I pay for the car? Do I uh, move my kid into a community where the air is clean and have to you know, drive two hours uh, to get to work? Uh, or do I keep my kid in that community and risk the, the, the consequences for the kid's lungs uh, and the, the poor quality school that's there to be able to get to my workplace uh, in a meaningful amount of time? I mean, these are impossible choices to make. And so the idea that our, soci- our society and our culture blames people for making, quote unquote, the wrong decision when both choices sucked, um, is itself a failure of our culture not a failure of those people.
1: Right. And it's within that structure that systemic racism exists. And so many people don't even have those opportunities that lead to the American dream that we, we all talk about. And, and the, the opportunity is just not even there. And as you talk about, you're, you're making decisions between kind of life and death and, mm-hmm. and um, rather than really moving forward. Abdul, what are your thoughts about how the protests following the George Floyd murder have intersected with this COVID-19 pandemic that we're now seeing a, a resurgence of?
2: Yeah. Well, the good news is that um, you know, there's been some some pretty heavy surveillance. And it looks like there haven't been many cases that were actually attributable to the protests. And Part of that is because people were actually being pretty r- responsible wearing masks. And then the protests were outside and people were marching. And so it's not like, the, the air droplets that are uh, communicating this uh, disease were there just sitting and festering and uh, in, infesting people's you know, nos- noses and, and mouths. But even then, right, I just believe the risk was more than justified. And here's why. Very simple analysis, uh, David Satcher, former Surgeon General under President Bill Clinton, did. And he just asked, how many lives would we save if we were able to reduce the mortality rate among Black Americans so that it looked like the mortality rate among white, white Americans? And he estimated that about 83,000 lives would be saved every year. So you attribute those lives to systemic racism, right? That's how many lives systemic racism takes from us uh, every single year. And so in the end, when we go out there and we say Black Lives Matter, what we're saying is that those 83,000 lives are worth saving. Now, a lot of folks would say, well, you know, you're, you're going to do something that could harm the public's health. And my point is that, well, we're also doing something that could help the public's health, specifically 83,000 lives. Not only that, but COVID nineteen itself had a disproportionate burden on Black Americans, as you as you discussed. Um, there was another study that that when when we hit that one hundred thousand death mark, estimated that thirteen thousand lives were excess Black lives lost. And so uh, we've got a responsibility, I think, to recognize that itself. The protests themselves are a public health intervention, um, and they're a public health intervention of last resort because. Uh, those in places of power have not done what we needed to do to root out systematic inequities. And so here we are, right? What else do we do? And the very nature of the question suggests that when you're pitting the black lives we want to save through the protests against lives lost by COVID, you're implicitly saying that those black lives are of less value. And here we go again, black lives matter. So um, you know, the, the answer to the question is the justification for the protests themselves.
1: Right. And you bring up a really um, interesting point with those 83,000 lives because there are very few medical or healthcare interventions that are going to save 83,000 American lives per year. Mm-hmm. And yet we pour a fortune into the American healthcare system. Mm-hmm. When you step back and look at it from a public health justice standpoint or a, a, um, an economic justice standpoint, you actually can start to turn the tide and, and save lives. So I, I appreciate your saying that. Abdul, what does the nationwide reaction to the George Floyd murder, uh, as well as others, um, tell us about the disparities that really exist in our communities? Yeah,
2: um, I think for the first time in my lifetime, people are real serious about uprooting them. And I've got a lot of hope about the fact that we really did see a multiracial, multigenerational coalition of people come out and say enough is enough. My hope is that it doesn't end with rooting out racialized policing or even the system of mass incarceration. That we keep going and we ask about how racism has wrapped itself around all of these systems that dictate differential outcomes. So I am cautiously optimistic, but believe that in order to be uh, to accomplish their goal, we're going to have to be a lot more systematic about every uh, every uh, system. And also, uh, we are
1: going to have to turn this into real political power. Absolutely. So I'm going to ask you to put your public health hat on for a moment. Um, We're seeing rates of COVID-19 infection increase significantly as our society starts to open back up um, and and possibly related to the recent protests. Although, as you talk about, that's a really minimal aspect. There's more people going out, the economy opening up perhaps people being careless in, in terms of wearing masks. Um, besides wearing masks, how can protesters protect themselves and others from COVID-19 as they gather in close proximity with hundreds or even thousands of others who are, who are um, trying to fight some of these um, systematic injustices?
2: Yeah, I think, um, number one, uh, make sure to stay close to a small group of people and not move all around the protests. Number two, um, if you can avoid uh, yelling, um, I think it's great to bring something to make a lot of noise or bring a sign. Um, but the yelling is what releases the, the droplets that uh, tend to transmit the disease. Three, bring some hand sanitizer uh, and, um, and, and make sure that you use it regularly. Uh, four, um, I would say uh, to try and stay socially distanced, right? It doesn't have to be a tightly packed group. Um, and then five, of course, wear, wear a mask, as, as we discussed. The last thing I'll say, though, is that, you know, keeping protests safe is also about, um, is also about what authorities do, right? Authorities who care about COVID-19 uh, shouldn't be uh, holding protesters in, in tight groups. They shouldn't be corralling folks. They shouldn't be spraying people with, uh, with, with pepper spray and other irritants that get them coughing and ripping off their masks. Um, so I, I would say they have just as much, if not even more, responsibility uh, for keeping uh, peaceful protests that are fundamentally within the, our First Amendment rights uh, safe and, uh, and 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 re- reducing and minimizing the hazard.
1: That's some great advice for the public and and also for our um, public officials, Abdul. Um, I want to thank you on behalf of the podcast and on behalf of our audience for taking the time out of your busy evening to. Um, talk about these really uh, important issues and, and just helping to continue to educate the public. So uh, thank you very much.
2: Ted, thank you. I really appreciate um, all your work and your voice and your leadership, and I appreciate you sharing your space with me and, um, and hope I, uh, I can reciprocate someday.
0: Absolutely. My friend, thank you. That's it for today. Thanks for listening. This has been a production of Ars Longa Media. Our producers are Madison Linden and Chris Brightigan. Our executive producer is Dr. Patrick Beeman. If you have questions about COVID-19 that you'd like discussed on the podcast, send an email to info at arslanga.media. This podcast is for educational purposes only and not intended for medical advice. Be vigilant, but remain calm. Arslanga, vita Brevis.